Here in the room, those of you who are joining us online, thank you for worshiping with us today, as well as our Skagit campus. So glad that we can all be together uh, to worship Jesus and to look into his word. You know, this last week, there was a unique occurrence that I can't remember. It may have happened before, but I don't ever remember Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday falling on the same day, which makes for a very confusing day. Because Valentine's Day is about chocolate and love and flowers and roses and and. Ash Wednesday is about mourning and fasting and somberness and, and ashes. So I don't know how you, I don't even want to know how you did this. Maybe you gave uh, roses and then burned them and put ashes on, ate some chocolate and then fasted, whatever it was. But the, the, the Ash Wednesday launches us into the season of Lent. Now this is not a, a biblically founded uh, season, but in church history, the Lenten season, the 40 days leading up to, to Easter uh, is a part of church history. And really we we don't normally <clears throat> lean into Lent a whole lot, but this year we decided that we would leverage this season and, uh, and start a series that would go through the Lent season leading up to Easter. I always find it interesting that when it comes to Christmas, I almost always do a Christmas series, four to five weeks leading up to Christmas, but when it comes to Easter, I might do a, you know, a Palm Sunday and an Easter sermon, and it's interesting because Jesus never said, hey, remember my birthday and have a big party for me. But he did say, remember my death and resurrection, because it is central to everything. And so this year, we're going to be spending the next uh, seven weeks culminating on Easter in this Lent season with the new series that we're starting today. One other thing before we get into that, uh, kind of a monumental event that will happen in the life of this church, this body, this week, is that on Wednesday, um, Alfred Ruth Calkins, one of the great saints of our church, will turn 101 years old. Yeah. She will be um, in the next service sitting in this chair right here. Uh, she's an amazing woman. If you don't know Alta Ruth, she is one of the most, one of my heroes. She inspires me. She decided two years ago to go back to Walking Community College and take a class. She comes to the Global Leadership Summit every single year because she wants to learn and grow. She's amazing. And our lives intersect even before I was alive. When my mom, in the 50s, when my mom was 14 or 15 years old, she met Lyle and Alta Ruth. They were in their late 20s, early 30s in Southern California. That's how far back we go. When I came to this church in 1987, Lyle and Alta Ruth were serving, they were leading, they were praying, they were giving an intricate part of this church and have been ever since. In 31 years ago, early 1993, or 90, yeah, 93, 
when this church was trying to decide who will the next pastor be, she was on that committee that actually called me. So you can either thank her or blame her uh, because she was a part of that. And her husband uh, was a part of our church as well. I remember in the late 90s, there was a decision that I had to make, and it was one that I was wrestling with because I knew it wouldn't be a popular decision for everybody, especially those who are older with a more traditional liking of worship. And her husband, Lyle, in a council meeting, gave me the permission, pushed me over the edge to make that kind of decision, and it, it really allowed us to reach hundreds of people. Just an amazing man. Uh, her husband, Lyle, passed away 11 years ago this month. He passed away one day after uh, Altruth's 90th uh, birthday. In his latter years, Lyle was dealing with dementia, but he never lost his sense of humor. Altruth would bring him to church every Sunday, and I would greet him every Sunday, and he would say every Sunday, I'm here, but I'm not all there. <laughs> and it just never got old. Just love that. In his last year of life, there was a moment of clarity, a, a day when he, had, when he recognized that he was absolutely lucid. And in that moment, he made a decision. He sat down, and he wrote a letter to his wife, to Altruth. It wanted, he wanted it to be the last thing that she heard from him. And so as he writes this, in this clarity, he writes this, and he decided at that point not to give her the letter, but to hide it in a place where he knew she would find it after he had died. And so he hid the letter knowing that the next day he would not remember where he hid it <laughs> or that he had even written it. And he passed. And sure enough, several months later, just according to plan, where he hid it, he knew she would find it. He hid it in her Bible. And as she was reading the Bible, she came across the letter, the last words that her husband wanted her to receive from him. What a gift. What a gift. This week I called my mom, and I asked her about the last conversation she had with my dad. In 2007, my dad was beginning to decline rapidly, and it was in de December of 2007, and, and mom said, dad's in his last days. I, there had been this rain, this flood, Centralia was underwater, I-5 was closed. To get to see him, I would have had to drive to Yakima and around, and I had to be here for the weekend, and she said, Bob, d just don't, don't worry about coming down here on Friday, December 7th, 2007. He passed away. And I said, Mom, do you remember that last conversation that you had with Dad? And she said, yeah, not only do I remember it, but I had the wherewithal that when we had that conversation, I wrote it down because I didn't want to ever forget it. I said, well, would you share that with me? And then do you mind if I share that with our church? So this was part of their very last words together. When Dad was laying in the hospital, my mom said this, Gerald, I think God is sending his chariot for you tonight. And my dad responded, tonight? And she said, yes, tonight. What do you think about that? Dad said, whatever. <laughs> I'm just so tired. And mom said, is there anything you want to tell the kids before you go? And dad said, tell them that I like the way they're living their lives. And mom said, is there anything else? And dad said, I have a pretty wife. 
And then she said there was a long pause. And with great labor, he said, I love you. And then he died. What a gift. And the reason I tell you that is because if you know that you're coming down to the very end, the last words that you would say, the final message that you would want to get across is that which is most important. The, the superfluous stuff, the meaningless, it's really the core that you would want to give to that person as a gift. And we have received that gift. That Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, gives these final statements, the, these last words, these sayings, very deliberately, very intentionally, with great difficulty. He utters from the shadow of the cross these sayings. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he gives the message of the cross from the cross. From the shadow of the cross, he gives this message. The 24 hours leading up to this had been a whirlwind of activity. He had been in the upper room with his disciples. They had celebrated the, the uh, Passover together. He had eagerly desired to have this meal with them. He now desires to show them the extent of his love. He washes their feet. He institutes this thing called the Last Supper communion, the Eucharist, and his body and his blood broken and, and spilled, and they don't understand that. He gives them this incredible discourse, this upper room discourse we find in John chapter 13 through 17. He prays this high priestly prayer, and then they go across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives, and there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays with such anguish that, that he sweats these drops of blood. And then the guards come in, and they arrest him, and in that moment, he's been betrayed by one of his disciples, abandoned by 10 others, and then finally denied by the one who is closest to him. He undergoes a, a night filled with trials. And then he's taken out and he is flogged. And then the crucifixion. Six hours, seven statements, eternal impact. Six hours from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., he hangs on the cross. And during those six hours, with a great deal of difficulty, he utters these seven statements, these sayings, these words. Luke records three of them. Matthew and Mark record one of them. And John records the other three. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to take one of these statements each week and look at what is it that Jesus said? What was the message from the cross for us? And while they're very short statements, the impact is eternal. 
Let me tell you a little bit about today and a little bit about this series of what's happening. Today, as I said, we're going to look at the first of these last words of Jesus, the first statement that he, he shares on the cross. Following that, at the end of our time together with the sermon, we're going to be taking communion uh, together. And again, those of you online, uh, hope that you have elements that you can uh, join with us in this time of remembering what Lord, the Lord has done for us. But there's something else. Uh, if you went to an Ash Wednesday service, no doubt they, they burned the palm branches and then there was ashes probably put in the sign of a cross on your forehead. Or if you were raised Catholic, you're probably very used to doing the sign of the cross to cross yourself. Well, in kind of our version of that, today when you leave, um, we're going to give each one of you a little wooden cross. And what we're asking is that you would take this cross and for the, for the entirety of this series that you would keep it with you, wh whether it's in your pocket every single day or in your purse, on your desk or on your dashboard or on your counter, somewhere where you'll see it every day so that in this season, it's not just when you come to church every weekend <laughs> that you will hear about this, but that throughout the week, you'll remember these messages that Christ gave from the cross. And you'll remember the impact. And so just keep it with you. In fact, you can do whatever you want, but there's a little hole drilled through it. You can make a necklace or put it on your keychain or whatever. Just, just keep this in mind. It's very small and there's a choking hazard. So don't put it in your mouth and don't give it to small children. Now we're off the case. You know, we don't want any kind of legal action taken. <laughs> but we want you to take this cross because there's nothing more central to this season, to our faith, to our lives and our eternity than the cross of Jesus Christ. So today, you'll get one of those on the way out. And one more thing is that during this series, I've talked with Ron, and I, I said, every single week in this series, I want at least one song that we worship together, at least one song that directly points to the cross and what Jesus has done. And so that will be a part of, of our worship over the next seven weeks. With that, one of the songs that we will sing, not today, but we will sing later in the series, is a song called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I want to just read for you verse 2 of this song. Verse 2 says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That's not just poetic, that's not just lyrics. The scoffers of the things that were said, the mocking, the ridicule, that was put on Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. Matthew records this in Matthew 27, verse 39 through 44, where it says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, the religious leaders mocked him. Oh, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
Well, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The level of ridicule and mockery. And in Isaiah 53, this prophecy of the suffering Savior, it says that he remained silent. That he did not open his mouth quietly like a lamb led to the slaughter. Oh, he could have said a whole lot of things. He could have called them out. He could have called the whole thing off. He he could have called down vengeance, wrath, and justice from heaven. Just 12 or so hours before, when they were in the garden and, and, and Peter wants to overthrow this thing, Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 26, do you not think, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was a a regiment of soldiers in the Roman army, 6,000. He says, do you not think I could just snap my fingers and God would put at my disposal 12 times 6, 72,000, more than 12 legions of angels, more than 72,000 angels? Could, Could I not do that right now? And yet he remains silent. He doesn't call them down. He hangs on the cross. And then from these swollen, cracked, bleeding, trembling lips that begin to move, Luke records the very first thing that he says on the cross. And what's amazing is that the first thing Jesus says after all of this ridicule is a prayer. He prays. Now, on the one hand, that shouldn't strike us so odd. Jesus always prayed. At the beginning of his ministry, when he was baptized, it says he was praying. Throughout his ministry, it says very often he would retreat to a lonely place where it was solitude and he would pray. It says very early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up and dismissed himself to go pray. Leaving the crowds behind, he went into the hills to spend time in prayer. He spends all night in prayer. Jesus prayed all the time. He prayed over the loaves and the fishes before he fed the 5,000. He prayed before he brought Lazarus back from the grave. He taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer. And on that final night, he prayed that high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now, as he hangs suspended between heaven and earth, he prays, and in that prayer, He takes earth's greatest need in prayer to heaven and brings heaven's greatest provision for earth's greatest need. It's not that he prayed that's so shocking. He always prayed. It's what he prayed that's so shocking. Because he wasn't praying for himself. The verse we're going to look at today, and we'll come back to it probably four, maybe five times, is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And this is the first saying from the shadow of the cross, this prayer. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they do. Serious? That's what he's praying? After everything they've done, that's what he prays? And it makes sense. This first saying addresses our greatest need. The first thing that he says, the first prayer, addresses our absolute greatest need. Not only does it address our need for forgiveness, it illustrates, his prayer illustrates the very purpose that he came, the very reason he came, why he was even there, why there even is a cross. I mean, at his birth, the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, this is good news, a great joy that will be for all the people, that today in the city of David, a savior has been born to you. That's the reason he came, to be a savior. When he sees his cousin, his relative, John the Baptist, at 30 years of age, they probably haven't seen each other since they were kids, and John sees him and says to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the reason he came. Jesus would say, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's the whole reason he came. And it's our greatest need because our sin, our selfishness, the things that we think, the things that we say, the things that we do, our motives, our lifestyles, the things that separate us from God, the things that cause this chasm between us and our sinful, fallen, broken state and a holy, righteous God, a chasm that there's no way we could cross, no way that we could do anything in our own righteousness, our own good deeds to somehow make up for what we've done. It was only what Jesus would do on the cross. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. This is why we want to have the cross as the focal point for all of us daily throughout this season, to remember what Christ has done for us. So let's go back into the context of what was happening when Jesus prays this first prayer, when he gives this first statement from the shadow of the cross. Back to Luke 23, it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. We're going to talk about them next week, so we won't go into that a whole lot today. When they came to the place called the Skull, also Golgotha. Some of your translations will say Golgotha. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. What is interesting to me is how little time or attention that the gospel writers go into what happened. They just simply said, and he was crucified, or he was flogged and they crucified him. They don't go into any details at all about this whole crucifixion. It's almost like they downplay it, at least in their writing. And I think the reason of that is the people they were originally writing to didn't need a whole lot of explanation. They knew what crucifixion was. They knew the horror of crucifixion. They had seen it. They had heard it. They had smelled it. They had been terrified by it. Crucifixion was not created by the Romans, but the Romans perfected it. And it was not only meant to be the most torturous way of death, of, of capital punishment, but it was meant to send a very clear message to anyone who ever saw 
someone be crucified, whatever they did, you do not want to do. Crucifixion was set up to be the slowest, most painful, torturous, humiliating, shame-filled means of death. That sometimes the one crucified would hang on the cross for up to three days. And it had been imperfected to the point of bringing them right up to the point, but not quite into the bliss of unconsciousness. Lingering on just away from the relief of death. Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish Roman centurion, he said that crucifixion is the most wretched way to die. Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher of Rome at the same time of Jesus, he said this, he wrote this. But what sort of life is lingering death? Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on chest and shoulders, and draw the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. Anyone who knew anything about crucifixion said, if there's any other way to die, choose that. No one would ever choose to be crucified. Years ago, the Journal of American Medical Association put out an article called On the Physical Death of Christ from a medical standpoint of what went into the death of Jesus. And and I've done, uh, over the course of years, a presentation based on that article probably three times in our church, and I will spare you uh, those details today. But I do want to remind us just briefly of what went into that. After Jesus had been tried Then he's sent off to be flogged, to be scourged, where where his robe would be taken off and his arms would be tied above his head. And then soldiers, Roman soldiers, with a a cat of nine tails, a a short whip that has in the the thongs of leather, there would be bones and lead and pieces of glass as they would bring this down upon his back, his buttocks, and his hamstrings. And it would first begin to make these deep bruises. And then as it continued on, it would make these contusions. And as the, the lead and the bone would sink into the body, they would rip it down and bring to the whole point of, of these shreds, these ribbons of his whole back and buttocks and thighs and the loss of blood and the pain. And then after that, the accused was, was to carry their own cross, the, the patibulum, the, the cross piece of the cross, weighing at least 75 pounds, putting that rough-hewn piece of timber across these shoulders that were ripped to shreds with their arms tied to it so that if they were to fall, there's actually nothing that would break their fall, and Jesus did fall. And then to get out to the place of the crucifixion, the skull, and be thrown down, and then to have, in essence, what would be similar to a railroad spike driven in to both hands and through the feet, put up on this cross. And in the midst of all of that pain, the physicians that have examined this said the the loss of blood, the pain, the, the shock of all of these things that are going on would just be amplified by the fact that as they hang there, they could breathe in with no problem, but to exhale 
would mean that they would have to pull themselves up on these spikes that were in their wrists and push up on the spike that was through their feet, somehow just with their back already ripped to shreds across this, this rough cross piece to pull themselves up just to exhale. So you begin to understand that these last seven sayings of Jesus were not only short by design because they're, they're so concise, but because physically it was so absolutely excruciating to even be able to say them. And there Jesus hangs with that kind of pain, but it's not just the pain, but that he, the creator of the universe, is being rejected and killed by the pinnacle of his creation. John records in John chapter 1 these words, He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Rejected, despised, ridiculed, tortured, and he remained silent. I love how the New King James Version writes this, this prayer in Luke 23, 34. It says, then, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Not while he was being tried. In fact, there were times in the trial where they said, are you not going to answer? Silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. Not was he was being scourged. Not when he was walking with the patibulum, the, the cross piece on his shoulders. Not when they were nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. But then and only then, while he's hanging there, then he spoke. When man had done his worst, Jesus did his best. All that they could do Man had demonstrated how cruel humanity could be. Jesus demonstrates how kind he is. When man had revealed the ugliness of the human heart, Jesus revealed the beauty of the Father's love. Man had showed how vile things could be. Jesus showed how attractive, lovely, and pleasant. And when man displayed the greatest depth of hatred, Jesus displayed the depth of love. They rejected him. He accepted them. They condemned him. He forgave them. When man had done his worst. Jesus did his best. I wonder, while Jesus was hanging there on that cross, if his mind went back to a day, maybe a day in the spring, in Galilee up on a hillside, with the green grass of the hills swaying with the breeze and the wildflowers, and looking down across the Sea of Galilee, and the beauty and all of the disciples and the followers there, 
great love for him. And what just a beautiful day as the sun is kissing his face. As he began to share truths in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke records it this way in Luke chapter 6. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This wasn't just a platitude for Jesus. It's not just a bumper sticker. It was not just a cliche. It was not just a philosophical ideal. It was how he would live his life and how he would say we, his followers, would live our lives as well. And maybe when there's this seemingly impossible calling to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, and to bless those who curse us, maybe the best place to start is where Jesus started. is to pray. To simply pray. Pray that they would be blessed. Pray that God would be good to them. This week I heard about a, a pastor who years ago had a leader leave his church and leaving in a very mm, ungodly way. Some of the things that were said were very personally hurtful to the senior pastor. Some of the things that were said and done were actually very damaging to the body of Christ as they left. And this pastor kept a picture of that individual on his desk. And when asked, why is their picture on your desk? His response was, so that I'll remember to pray for him. You know, when we read these words, sometimes we say, but, but, but they don't deserve it. Those who've done wrong to me, those who my enemies who've hurt me, who hate me or curse me, they don't deserve it. And maybe Jesus would say, you're absolutely right, they don't. And maybe the reason Jesus said, I want you to do this is not actually for them. It's for you. So you don't find yourself with this shriveled, hardened, bitter, cynical heart. Because I love you too much to allow that to happen to you. So Jesus prays. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Now, those of us who have been raised in church, we, we know this, we've heard this. Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. We, we, yes, of course. But hold on a second before you say, yeah, I've heard this, I know this, this verse. Father, forgive them. Why would he say that? He said, well, they need to forgive. Okay, okay, I got that, but, but hold on a second. For three years, Jesus has had this earthly ministry. And in those three years, he's talked about forgiveness, and there's been forgiveness. But this is the only occasion in his entire ministry where he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, think about it. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know from the flannel graph story of the little guy who's brought in by his four buddies and they tear off the roof and they let him down on a mat because he's paralyzed and he comes before Jesus. You know that story. And when he's brought before Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, Father, forgive him. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't call on the Father to forgive him. In fact, his statement your sins are forgiven, 
brings him into some pretty hot water. In Luke chapter, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 7, says this, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which I think Jesus is saying, agreed. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. And they're saying, you're trying to, and Jesus responds, and he says, so what's easier to say to this guy? Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk. They didn't say a thing. And Jesus said, so to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, get up, take your mat, and go home. He, he never said, Father, forgive. In Luke chapter 7, he's having dinner at a Pharisee's house, a religious leader, and this woman who it says has a sinful lifestyle. Not she messed up a time or two. Her whole lifestyle, she's known by, her identity is that she has a sinful lifestyle. She comes in, pours perfume on his feet, pouring out her heart, crying with tears, wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Not, Father, forgive. So why now? Why does now, as he's hanging on the cross, why does, why does he not just look down and say, your sins are forgiven? Why does he say, Father, forgive them? I mean, forgiveness is a divine prerogative. That's what he said. That's what he showed. That's what he modeled and demonstrated. So why not? And maybe therein lies the answer to that. I mean, Jesus lived his life hanging out with sinners and now in death, he is literally hanging with the sinners. And Jesus identifies with the sinners. Like Jesus identifies with all sinners. And maybe at this point, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, when it talks about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Maybe at this point, Jesus freely lays down his divine prerogative as he identifies with the sinners. 700 years earlier, Isaiah would prophesy about this. In Isaiah 53, it says, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors. He bears their sin and he makes intercession just as has happened. But it's not just that. He also takes their sins away. 1 John chapter 3 says, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. He not only identifies with the sinners, he not only is there for the sinners, but the thing that is so mind-boggling and hard to understand is that he actually becomes the sin. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment while he's hanging on the cross, instead of saying, your sins are forgiven, he says, Father, forgive, because he lays down that divine prerogative and he becomes the very thing that must be forgiven. He becomes sin. So he says, Father, forgive them. And then it says, for they do not know what they do. Well, of course they knew what they were doing. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They saw him get flogged. They knew what was happening. They knew what crucifixion was. They, they knew that he would be nailed to the, to the cross. What they didn't know was the gravity of their decisions and their activity. That the one who is being crucified is not just another criminal, not just an enemy of the state, but the author of life. They did not know that, but with sin, ignorance is not innocence. Just because they were ignorant of what they had done, it still must be forgiven. And I wonder how many times we're ignorant of the impact of our sin. We have this tendency to downplay it and kind of justify it and rationalize it and compare it. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I don't do that and I'm not like them and they're way worse than me. And maybe we're just as ignorant of what our sin does in the presence of a holy, righteous God. So Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they do. And what's interesting is 53 days later, Peter preaches his very first sermon in Acts chapter 3, and it says this. He says to the people, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, brothers, I know that you acted, here it is, in ignorance, as did your leaders. That doesn't make you innocent. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Is he praying for the criminals on each side? Yeah. Is he praying for the Roman soldiers that have nailed him to the cross, the ones who are now rolling dice for his clothes? Yeah. Is he praying for the mocking crowd that make fun of him and ridicule him? Yes. Is he praying for the religious leaders that caused all this to happen? Yes. But as he also prayed, and he prays for us. In our self-centered selfishness with our thoughts and our motives and our deeds and our actions and all the things that we've done, he prays for us. When we have done our worst, Jesus does his best. Hebrews chapter 7, we read these great words of hope. Therefore, he is able to save completely 
those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father saying, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing more beautiful than us doing our very worst and Jesus responding with his very best. That's why the reason we exist is to help people find and follow Jesus. And in this season leading up to Easter, I want us to just fix our eyes, as it says in Hebrews 12, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's us. We're blessed because he was cursed. Today we're going to close our time in taking communion. And today the ushers are going to pass, and those are online, I hope you have your elements, but here in the room, the ushers are just going to pass the elements, and you can just take those. If, you, if you're in a place where you're like, ah, I'm not there right now, just let it go by. We won't make a big deal of it. You don't make a big deal of it. But you're welcome to take this. By the way, bread's gluten-free for those who are really concerned right now. But just take this. And when you do, the band and the worship team are going to be playing and lead us into some songs. And I want you to remember that that bread is the body of Jesus that was broken. And it's his blood that was shed. And as you take this, imagine you listen in to the throne of God and hear Jesus whisper these words, Father, forgive her. Father, forgive him. Forgive them. One of the songs that they're going to sing is a song we haven't done for years. It's above, above all, the song that talks about Jesus like a rose was trampled in the ground. But he took it all on, and above all, he did this for you and me.